0: The following is a podcast from Ballin Rand Entertainment.
1: Hello, it's Craig Thompson, and this is the Stratford Slice. As the old saying goes if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. The show is going to be a little bit different today because I'm going to be having a surprise guest who looks like me, sounds like me, and talks like me. So it, it must be me. In fact, it is me. I'm a big fan of, of Michael Moore's podcast called Rumble. Michael is very talented at having a conversation with himself. He can go on for hours and hours, I imagine. Um, I'm not so practiced at that. Uh, so I'm not going to be able to interview myself or ad lib for an hour or whatever time it takes. So I've brought in my old friend and, and colleague, Rick Whalen, uh, who knows almost as much as I do about the stories, and he's going to be my uh, coach or safety net as I uh, go through my, the story of my adventures over the last number of decades.
0: I will be your grand inquisitor, so fasten your safety belt.
1: Well, I wanted to start off by talking about the whole full circle effect. I started this podcast as something to do uh, uh, during the pandemic in between making you know, major feature documentaries and interviewing people I know and people I, I didn't know. And I was thinking about that because I'm from Stratford originally, and I started my career... Uh, at the local radio station uh... many years ago and here i am doing uh... internet radio show called a podcast full circle and the other interesting thing too is that uh, back you know when i was a, a youngster i delivered newspapers for the london free press and the building where our studio is now was once the site of the london free press stratford bureau and every week I would have to come down, or every day, I can't remember how many times, I'd have to come down and deposit the coins and earnings that I had collected uh, for delivering the newspaper. So that's right on the, on the site. So life has a strange way of, of going full, full circle, doesn't it, Rick?
0: It certainly does. Um, when I think of my relationship with you, it started, I believe, when you were still in high school and an usher at the uh, Avon Theater when I was performing with the festival. That's right. So here we are, uh, how many years later, still? It's wild. Going back and forth. Um, I think, let's start uh, with your early days, uh, high school. How did you, what did you want to be when you were in high school?
1: Well, it's interesting because I, I think because our family moved to Stratford when I was eight, that sort of laid out, a path for me that might not have existed in Sudbury, where we had uh, moved to. Perhaps in Sudbury, I might have become an astronaut or something like that. Because or they a were, nickel miner. Or a nickel miner. <laughs> but going from Sudbury to Stratford, uh, you're going into culture, a cultured town. Absolutely. You're influenced by, by the theater. And you reminded me back in the day when I was an usher, one of the duties of the ushers was to sit in the theater and make sure the audience didn't g- do anything crazy. And so in doing so, um, you tended to memorize the the plays. You watched them hundreds of times. So for a time, I could recite Hamlet front to back, and Tempest, and Importance of Being Earnest. And uh, yeah, so I, I kind of um, uh, knew the plays, and I was immersed to culture. My dad was also an English teacher, and he taught Shakespeare. Uh, so I think... The fact that I was in Stratford kind of gave me some exposure to um, uh, my future career. But at the time, I didn't view it as a career. It was more like a fun hobby.
0: And curiously, you didn't pursue acting, as maybe some people who saw a lot of theater did. You decided at first you uh, you wanted to be a, a, an airline pilot, I believe. Well, yeah, I loved flying, and I wanted to be an airline
1: pilot. I thought it would be a cool thing to do. And I'd actually started when I was working for the London Free Press, I won a prize for being whatever the, the most sign-ups of new customers or whatever. And as a prize, they took us all up in an old Lockheed Martin twin prop jet Uh, we arrived in London, we flew over Stratford, you know, you'd never do that today, but we swooped over our backyard and uh, (laughs) my parents could look up and see the plane. And uh, we were taken on an excursion to the London Free Press as a prize. The flight was part of the day. Uh, We went to see the hot type uh, going into the newspaper, how they made the newspaper. I came home with a collection from that paper of the hot lead, Uh, in one of those wooden boxes. And uh, then they took us out to McDonald's because London was the very first city in Canada having McDonald's. This was like 1973 or something like that. Uh. So we had McDonald's, an airplane flight, and uh, um, the London uh, Free Press Tour. So for me, all of that was kind of fun. And I think not becoming an actor was because I I was quite shy. Uh, And I think I gravitated towards radio because... It's a good place. Well, acting is as well, but uh, I felt like radio was a good place to uh, where I could really be myself without yeah. uh, having a large number of people watching me because when you're an actor, you've got a, the audience, whereas in radio, you've got nobody.
0: And you've got a great face for radio, too. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> Just you. Just kidding. Thank you. Uh, so tell me about how the dream to become an airline pilot died and sprouted another dream
1: well you know i I didn't look at my hobby as being a uh, uh, anything more than just something to do for fun because i had been reading the announcements at school and somebody said hey you have a good voice you should go up and they're looking for somebody to do the high school news at the radio station but an answer to that question is that um, i was terrible in math and physics and my guidance counselor said There's no way you're going to get into Seneca uh, with those kind of grades. Forget about it. Um, Not really explaining that you just don't, that's not the only way to become a pilot. Um, But uh, it was sort of turning what I love doing into a job. So um, skipping over a few years after I graduated from high school, I went to what was then called Ryerson Polytechnical Institute and got my degree in journalism. But uh, my hobby, uh, working in radio, actually laid the groundwork for, for my career because from the high school uh, uh, news thing that I was doing every Thursday night or something like that, I moved into uh, a news reporter, a news reader, and then a, a weekend disc jockey. Or you do everything. You read the news. You even read the funeral announcements on Sunday morning. And... Oh, yeah. loaded up the, um, the library of the religious program, the programming that would come on on Sunday mornings.
0: And I believe you did a, 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 a documentary uh, with a famous Stratford citizen, uh, Lloyd Robertson. Uh, how did that? Uh,
1: well, that's right. I was, uh, uh, at the time, we were considered nerds, but we were in the A.V. club. Where we learn to use. What do you mean at the time? Well, now nowadays, uh, everybody's <laughs> no, using cameras. Everybody's hit. using cameras and things. Back in the day, we had a black and white video camera, and we had a dark room and photography and and that kind of stuff. And people would make fun because you have chemicals in there, and people, oh, you're going to go in there and get uh, get <laughs> high. But uh, I was more interested in the video end of things, and it was coming up on Stratford's anniversary of 100 years as a high school, and I wanted to tell that story. And I didn't want to use a black-and-white video camera, so I decided to do uh, what was then called a multimedia presentation. So I shot the entire documentary on color slides, which I developed myself, and then did all the interviews on a reel-to-reel tape recorder and uh, went down to Toronto and got Lloyd Robertson to do the narration uh, for it.
0: And does that still exist in some way?
1: It does. It's on three-quarter-inch umatic tape, uh, which I don't know I can still play or not, but uh, uh, it was uh, like a 45-minute documentary, and it ended up going on Rogers Community Television uh, as, a,
0: as a special. So you're at Ryerson. You graduate from Ryerson, and what was the first brush with the professional broadcasting career?
1: Well, the reason I chose Ryerson, I was also accepted at Western uh, Journalism School as well as Carlton, and I was really torn uh, because I, at the last minute, I was going to Carlton, and I decided at the last minute to switch to Ryerson, and I did that because more of the professors at Ryerson also held down day jobs in the newspapers and at the cbc so i felt that i would probably have a more direct line into a job doing the ryerson route and also i really wasn't eager to spend that much time in school and carlton was a four-year program and ryerson was three years but the great thing about being in toronto was the professors worked for the toronto star The Sun, the Globe and Mail, the CBC. Real-life experience. Real-life experience. And uh, there were actually recruitment happening every summer for summer jobs. So my first summer, uh, I came back to Stratford and worked with you at the Stratford Beacon Herald. That was the summer that Terry Fox uh, ran through Stratford. That's right. And uh, you know, I uh, breathed in so much secondhand smoke to last a lifetime in that summer. But I learned a lot about about writing, and it was because I was churning out. We were doing, you know, two or three articles a piece a day. Yeah, it yeah. was a lot of pay- copy did to you, write.
0: Would you did you work at the Festival Edition at that point? No, I no. didn't. No, because every every season the Fe- uh, Beacon Herald put out the Festival Edition, which was a wonderful multi-page background of the festival.
1: It was always done in the wintertime uh, leading yeah, up, it's... and I started my summer placement in April. Oh, yeah. So that was uh, my job. We were up on the old building on Ontario Street, and uh, my memory of the... I, I was never a smoker in high school, but the smoke is the constant memory, and there was another fellow in the newsroom at the time named Al Zabus, and Al had a, a habit of bringing in a... A uh, scraper that you use for uh, drywall plastering, and once every two or three weeks, he would scrape off the nicotine stains off the window <laughs> and, <laughs> and throw them out so we could see out. So what the, what's the weather out there like? Let me let me scrape the window. I know off. it
0: was almost de, de rigueur to be a smoker in those days, and and if you didn't, you you got secondhand smoke uh, in spades.
1: And a drinker, in fact, one of our classes. Uh, uh, took place every Friday at the Imperial Public Library, which was uh, next to the Ryerson campus. And our, our esteemed professor would take the young recruits from the journalism school down for... Now, this is where the real journalists hang out. So we'd go down to the bar, and uh, right. he'd regale us with stories.
0: Yeah, that was the old image, isn't it? The hard-bitten, hard-drinking, hard-smoking, you know, tough journalists.
1: Well, guy. it was true. In fact, when I got into the CBC, it was still prevalent in the day. That was sort of how you you worked hard and you played hard. Yeah. And, uh, that, oh, that has changed. Now yeah. you
0: work hard and don't smoke yeah. and stay healthy.
1: Yeah, so... I had worked in radio, as I mentioned, in high school as a hobby, so I still didn't take radio seriously. I said, well, if I really want to be a real journalist, I have to go to the journalism, the newspaper track of Ryerson. So I took the newspaper program uh, because I felt that, oh, if I want to be a real journalist, I have to stick with print. So. Um uh, I did, uh, I edited the Ryerson campus newspaper. Mm-hmm. I did that for a, a year, got a lot of, uh, experience doing that. And the next summer, um, I went down to London and worked for a CFPL, which was channel 10. I did some TV work yep. there at the time. So I was kind of torn at the time. When am I going to be a broadcaster or, or print reporter?
0: What tipped the scales toward broadcasting for
1: you? Well, it didn't. It tipped it towards newspapers because after I graduated, I got job offers. I had applied to newspapers because they were actually paying money. Radio paid nothing, right? And if you really wanted, and also newspapers were unionized and it was like a a real job, whereas radio was like, you know, you're doing it for fun and you should be happy just getting nothing. Uh, So I had done an internship at the Globe and Mail, I had a pretty good portfolio of print articles, so when I was ready to graduate, uh, I got offered a lot of different jobs from different newspapers across Canada, um, and I eventually accepted an offer to go to Ottawa and work for the Ottawa Citizen. And um, what was your beat then? Well, it was features, features writing, because that was my specialty. I was mm-hmm. really good at writing long. Stories. I wasn't very good at writing short short pieces. But Spot I, news. Yeah. But I have to step back for a minute because one of the ways I paid my way through Ryerson was because of my radio experience in Stratford, CFRB needed somebody to do overnight news on weekends, uh, the least popular shift in any radio station. And uh, they took my audition tape thinking, oh, here's some guy who must be in his 30s or whatever. And uh, when this kid shows up on the doorstep, you know, of the place where Gordon Sinclair worked, it's sort of like, okay, I guess you you know what you're doing. So they gave me the overnight job uh, in my second year of Ryerson. I did that for, for two years. And
0: you would do the news updates or?
1: News updates starting at midnight. So midnight, one, two, three, four, five. And how long did the six. updates last? They were seven minutes.
0: And where did you get the news from?
1: Off the wire services. Okay. You have to write them. And then we had the radio. Uh, services coming in, putting, the, but I'd done that for years in Stratford at yeah. CJCS, so I, it wasn't, it wasn't, except a bigger audience, yeah, and uh, it was, it was quite fun. But again, you look back and you pinch yourself because how lucky you were to be working at the time yeah. when Gordon Sinclair, Betty Kennedy, Earl Warren—these are people that my parents and my grandmother listened to, yeah. you know, in the nineteen fifties and 60s yeah—and we didn't have. Smartphone, so I couldn't take selfies, or I did. you didn't <laughs> do that kind of stuff. So you don't yeah. have a lot of, and and you didn't sit down and say, "Hey, Gordon, let me get some career advice from you." There wasn't. There was kind of a. You were there, but you didn't feel that you belonged in yeah, some way.
0: Yeah, you were an apprentice, and yeah. they were the masters, and you didn't approach them no readily. No,
1: and also back in that day, there was kind of a, a society was more hierarchical. You respected your Absolutely. elders, and. You speak when spoken to, and yeah. uh, it was a the very same different thing, world.
0: The same thing goes for theater. Obviously, uh, the British model of theater is very much s- structured, and and the young actors who are just starting out don't dare to approach the the leading man or the the iconic. British actor. It's very, it's very, you know, regimented and and much like what you're talking about at the old days of CFRB.
1: Well, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. I didn't get much sleep. Uh, I had to, uh, you know, being a student, you are also partying a bit of time. So I I think I had to survive on the overnight shifts, uh, you know, popping some caffeine pills and drinking lots of coffee. But it was a great experience. Uh, the, I think the biggest news night that I was there was when the night John Lennon was murdered. Oh, yeah. And my newscast was the first one to uh, to actually report it. So that was my wow. uh, news overnight uh, when he was gunned down in Central Park.
0: Yeah. What wire services did you have? The Canadian Press? and. It's CP. And
1: then we had AP. Yeah. And then we had Broadcast News, which sent us the audio from uh, across Canada. And then we we had NBC. Uh, We were an affiliate. So in the news business, there's lots of sharing. And so CFRB, Standard Broadcasting, uh, subscribed to NBC News. So we would supply news to NBC, and then we would have the right to run NBC reports. So what we had on the night of John Lennon Mm -hmm. was we had a live report or live recorded reports. Uh, from NBC radio uh, from in front of the Dakota.
0: And that NBC connection, I believe, led to another gig for you. Not right then, further down
1: the road, because getting back to Ottawa, so after uh, having fun working at at CFRB, uh, um, I should tell one other story about CFRB. So my grandmother was a huge CFRB fan, and um, she lived in Alliston at the time, and she... Like, listen to the station religiously. Like, those were her heroes. And when I started working there as at the age of like 20 or 21, I brought her down into the hallways and uh, looking up at the, the photos of the all the people who are working there and she just she said to me uh, you know the, to, to imagine this is one of the highlights of my life is seeing my grandson work at the same place where all my heroes worked. so and, it was quite and a, in her
0: book you had arrived I'm sure oh exactly wow he's,
1: he's doing this it's, it's funny annoying.
0: how that kind of loyalty toward a a newspaper or a radio is very old school I'm not sure it, it exists today but I I know uh, I've heard stories that people who didn't believe in the moon landing until it was put in the local paper, and then they believed it. There was a a skepticism of any other other broadcast, but everyone had a favorite station or newspaper. Well, the great thing about
1: CFRB, uh, at the time, it was the biggest station, one of the biggest stations in North America. So it's Signal 1010. Would reach all across Ontario and into the United States. So mm-hmm. It was it was really. Uh, and that
0: was a Rogers. That's Fred. Fred nope.
1: uh, no, no, it wasn't. No, originally it was CFRB, Rogers Batteryless. It yes, was the first right, that. Right. But when I worked for it, it was owned by uh, Standard Broadcast. I Standard see. Broadcasting. It I was a see. corporate. Yeah. Corporate. Rogers had uh, got rid of it a long time ago previous to that.
0: So I feel the career fate slowly pointing you toward broadcasting how did that path go?
1: Well, Uh, I was going to get back to the fact that the CFRB family, they really liked the work I was doing and when I moved to Ottawa, I knew there were plans uh, uh, underfoot to open a new radio station in Ottawa because Standard had a radio station in Montreal, CJAD, a powerhouse. They had CFRB in Toronto, the number one station there, but they had nothing in the nation's capital the main radio station up there that was doing well was 580 CFRA. It was the dominant radio on the AM band, and CFRB said, well, we should have a presence in the Ottawa market. So they had this bold idea to open a replica of CFRB and CJAD in Ottawa, call it CJSB, and they planted the radio station on the same property as the TV station they owned, which was CJOH, and uh, started a radio station from scratch. And they hired a, a lot of journalists and opened the station with great fanfare in September. Went on the air September 1982, and uh, when they they lured me back f- from the Ottawa Citizen because I was actually uh, a summer placement. It was a summer program that they hired graduates from Ryerson to to do, and uh, I wanted a more guaranteed long term job, and they weren't. Uh, guaranteeing us, because it was the recession at the time, the 80, 80s recession, yeah. and the writing was on the wall that maybe your summer job might not continue. There was no guarantee. So I jumped at the chance for a full-time job at uh, this new radio station. And at the new radio station, I was a um, not a newscaster. I was a reporter. I was out in the field covering the news. I was up on Parliament Hill, uh, and I was also the helicopter Uh, Traffic reporter so i'd go up they they rotated that i didn't do it every day but i did morning sometimes afternoon sometimes doing and
0: how would you file your stories Uh, audio or
1: over a two-way radio in the car so back then you know we had citizens band radios and you could hook up your microphone and your tape recorder and file over the radio or um this is before cell phones uh you would go to a phone booth or a place where you're reporting from, and you unscrew the the microphone piece on the phone, get two alligator clips uh, that hooked up to your tape recorder, and you could use the phone as a transmitter and send your report down the line and do your editing on your tape recorder. So uh, that's how we filed reports. Or you went back to the studio in your car and did it in the booth there. But, and uh, it
0: it's, must be incredible to you how the scene has changed in broadcasting in a very short time, in other words, your your time in the business, you go from, you know, putting the alligator clips in a, in a phone to talking into your hand with the with the cell phone. Yeah. And,
1: and at the time using razor blades and tape, uh, on a reel-to-reel deck to edit your radio reports yeah. for for the show. It was really it's quite amazing. incredible. And look at now, we have a radio station right here at this desk. Yes. So it's uh, I know
0: it's. It's frightening. Uh, no, it's
1: not it's just it's just amazing. I think it's not frightening. it's It's amazing to see how much things have changed, but I'm so grateful for how much I learned during that that time. Like even at CFPL in London, when I was working for CFPL, they were just getting into videotape. So the junior reporters, and I was one of them, I was a summer student, would be given film cameras. So we had camera operators with us. But we had to edit our own film. We would come back from the field with our A-roll and our B-roll, take it to the lab, and then they would give us, a, you know, an hour later our film, and we'd have to sit at the Steenbeck uh, editing our own news for that night's broadcast. So
0: you were a film editor as well. Yeah, I had
1: to learn how to edit my own stuff. That's amazing. But it's the same principle as editing radio because you were using a razor blade yeah. and tape. Yeah, So it really what? When I look back on it, I say, wow, I did that. But I didn't really appreciated at the time. Yeah. Because
0: we but thought it, at the same time it it gave you a groundwork on telling a story. Yeah. Which I think now is your is your strong point.
1: That's right. And back in the day people thought videotape was a bit of a joke because it looked kind of electronic, didn't yeah. look real. Yeah. And at the time you had to hire bodybuilders because the the tape decks weighed like a hundred pounds. Yeah. And you'd have this weightlifter person walk around with you with this giant umbilical cord. Uh, carrying it, uh, so there was a camera operator, a sound operator, and a carrier of the VTR and the reporter. So it wasn't really what we called run and gun. You, no, you were very, very limited. Very, very limited. Yeah. and we had these giant wooden tripods. So it was a very cumbersome technology. Yeah. Whereas with film, it's like today's cameras; everything is housed in the camera. Yeah, and film. Oh, I get a film camera today. I get to go. You can go run around and be a lot yeah. more flexible.
0: Yeah. But yeah, absolutely uh, revolutionized. Like people today who have those little cameras on their front porch, I mean, they can you know monitor their home from work or from on vacation. It's uh, it's amazing. So there you are. What's your next? What's your next venture in uh, in broadcasting? Well, in
1: Ottawa, um, I'd always wanted to be a war correspondent. I really wanted to get over and and see some action because I was yeah. a real hero of, you know, the old war reporters. I followed Edward them. R. Moreau. Ed, uh, Dan Rather, yeah. uh, Michael McClear, um, a lot of the people who yeah. had done the Vietnam War because I was, uh, you know, coming of age sure. at the end of the Vietnam War and I saw all, all the coverage and I the
0: thought, oh. danger didn't. No, hold I you it back, looked or?
1: adventurous to me. Yeah. So because I was working at the radio station in Ottawa, uh, which was also affiliated with NBC, I was filing reports. Uh, This was NBC Radio News. You know, I was filing the reports from now and again when there was something of interest to them, like the Princess Diana's visit to to Mm -hmm. Ottawa, that kind of stuff. And uh, I believe there was a Canadian running the news department at NBC in New York. And uh, you would chat to these people because you'd be filing reports. Yeah. He said, uh, I think I, I, either I mentioned it to him or he said, we're looking for some uh, new recruits. And uh, um, and I said, I really want to see the world. And he said, how would you like to go to the Philippines? Uh, we think there's going to be a revolution, a violent revolution, and Marcos will be ousted. Do you want to go? And uh, I said, of course. So I accepted the job to go to the Philippines, uh, which I'm glad I didn't, in a way. I uh, didn't end up going. Um because it turned out to be a soft revolution, and there was no violence whatsoever. And of course, in the news business, no violence means no story. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of made the the right decision. Um, And instead, I opted for the safer route and um, moved next door to the TV station, CJOH, in Ottawa and did uh, a stint reporting. But I still had itchy feet, Uh, itchy feet. I I wasn't happy doing that. And uh, a colleague of mine had then moved to CFTO in Toronto, which at the time was owned by the Eatons and the Bassets, and they were expanding. And uh, I said, I'll try that. So he he offered me a job down there, and I went uh, down to Toronto, where at the age of like 23 or 24, I was at the biggest... (laughs) TV yeah. station. This is
0: the studio, the big studio. Agent really. Court. Agent now, Court, yeah, yeah,
1: now where Discovery is, and it's owned by Bell. And I was there, and uh, I was on camera. I was an on camera reporter um, every night on the news. Yeah.
0: and you would have a camera person come with you, and
1: yeah, I mean, in the morning you'd go in at at seven and get talk to the assignment editor, and he'd assign you your story. And then there was like ten or fifteen camera operators, so you'd have your crew for the day. You'd go out and do a different story every Do you day. Do
0: remember one of the top stories you, you covered then? Or?
1: Well, we, the biggest story uh, of the time was the Susan Nellis uh, Sick Kids Hospital uh, oh, inquiry, yes. yeah. which was called the, uh, what was it called, the Dublin inquiry? No, that was the Ben Johnson one. Uh, it was uh, the inquiry into the uh, uh, Sick Kids Hospital I remember nurse. that, yeah. Yes.
0: Dijoxin, I believe, was involved.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, the death of uh, children at the hospital. Yeah. That was big. Um, and I also covered uh, G7 meeting uh, at Toronto Convention Center with uh, President Bush, no, Ronald Reagan, Margaret yeah. Thatcher, yeah. Uh, Helmut Schultz from Germany, right. and Brian Mulroney. So a wow. lot of things like that. And uh, the good thing is wherever I worked, whether it was CJCS or CFRB or CFTO, I've always kept a few snippets of my reporting so i still have have. kind of an archive of what i did so yeah um and uh yeah so
0: how long did you work at cfco
1: i worked there for a a a couple of years and um the great part of uh that time was i was across the hall from lloyd robertson who i'd met years previously doing the documentary in stratford so
0: former stratford resident
1: that's right, and when you're uh, the two newsrooms are just adjacent to each other, and when er, they had a shortage across the hall, they would always come across to the CFTO and say, "Hey, anybody want to work a Canada AM shift uh, tomorrow? Canada AM is the mor- was the morning show, and a Canada AM shift meant coming in at one or two in the morning and working till." Nine. So,
0: and what did that work? Com- uh, compri- uh, pro- uh, Chase
1: producer. So you would write stuff for copy and okay and line up stuff for the show. So I did uh, a, a bit of that. And then when you're working for CFTO as a local CTV affiliate, if you get a story that's big enough, it would get on the national news. So yeah. I got a lot of uh, every day filing a report.
0: I get the sense that this was the climate of news, the news business where you had an opportunity to, to do almost everything and learn almost everything.
1: It was a huge opportunity because technology had finally made it possible for news to expand. We had satellite trucks. You could do almost live stuff pretty much, it was getting into the live era. But uh, there was, and news was on three or four channels, so there was a, uh, a focused audience, and it was where you had to go for TV news. There was no other choice, newspapers, radio, or, or the nightly news.
0: Do you think that same, those same opportunities are available today? No,
1: and we're seeing today that uh, the media has probably the lowest level of respect it's had in, in history, you know, people calling us fake and whatever it's uh, it's dangerous and you have people bouncing up on camera behind uh, especially women reporters and r- saying obscenities trying to ruin their yeah. their pieces. And then in the Ottawa Freedom Convoy protests, uh, you know yelling obscenities at the reporters who are doing their jobs. So I, I feel quite lucky at the time uh, to have gone through what I, I did through and what I learned and sometimes I, I, I wish oh, I wish I had done taking advantage of that opportunity. Oh, yeah. wasn't I?
0: Plus, back then, there was no such thing as fake news, and that has plagued the the national landscape. Well, we were in the
1: era credit. of Walter Cronkite. Yeah. and Most trusted and, man in America? Yeah, and uh, who was reading the news at CBC at the time? I think it was Nolton Nash. Yeah. And uh, George Cameron and all those legends from yes. the, the days. So you respected the people reading the news, and you took it as, as, as gospel. And you did feel a sense of privilege because you were you were respected. Oh, my son's working in the news, or my, I got a job in the news department. So, but the I was still in my twenties, and I felt like you know, I've reached this level, but I still had that itchy foot. There's more. more. I, I wanted to get out and, and see the world. And uh, um, during that time, there was an opportunity for local news reporters to go to Israel. Uh, I think it was the Canadian Jewish Congress or one of the Jewish organizations um, would every year bring a group of local reporters to Israel. This was just after the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Okay. And around the time of Sabra and Shatila, the the camps in Beirut, the massacres there, and the and the, did the you killing take of, part of that killing of Clark Todd, the CTV yeah, reporter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did I take part in that? No. Well, I, I was there as a as a local reporter, so we were brought to Israel. Uh, where they were, it was propaganda, but they were giving us the story of their legitimacy and why they were doing what they're doing. So they took us around. We'd filed reports back to our home stations. And then um, they took us uh, right up to the border, um, and we stayed there, uh, and we went into southern Lebanon with the South Lebanese army, uh just to see what was going on and we had to w- sit on our helmets Be- we were all wearing flak jackets and helmets sit on our helmets because of landmines and uh went in on a tour of southern lebanon around that time it was quite a risky venture yeah, but yeah but we did that and uh
0: now i remember you when you worked at the beacon and i remember you when you were the nusher at the avon theater but I lost track of you for a while, and then suddenly I turned on my television, and they were at a Northern Irish Cemetery dodging bullets.
1: Well, because I was working at CFTO in Toronto, which is a very... When you're in your 20s and you want to have fun, it's it was a very corporate uh, station. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was owned by the Eatons and the Bassetts.
0: Uh, Establishment.
1: Yeah. Your hair had to be cut above the collar. You know, there was a lot of rules, you know, whatever. You know. One day I came, uh, my very first week there, I think the owner of the station or the manager of the station came down and uh, I felt a tug on the back of my uh, head saying, Thompson, hair above the collar. So it was kind of a lot of rules, and yeah. I wasn't really—I wanted to tell stories that I wanted to tell, and they had uh, something called must-covers. When you had a must-cover, it meant that it was something the Eatons was sponsoring, like, oh, you have to go down and cover this fun run or this donation okay. to a charity or a sick kid's hospital thing. Yeah. and yeah. It's all news, but I—, I,
0: I So saw. there was interference from the powers that be. Oh, yeah.
1: It was their platform to yeah. tell a great story of what they were doing. There was legitimate news, but if there was a slow news day, you'd you'd have to fill it in with stuff that would make the yeah. Eatons and yeah. the Bassett's uh, uh, giving them exposure in the news. So I know
0: they're so careful now when when they talk about anything commercial, they always identify, you know, so and so is a sponsor of this program. Or, not then. You know, not no, then. It no. Was all,
1: so, I was still uh, uh people thought I was crazy at the time because I was making i don't know a lot of money. <laughs> I think it was like forty over forty thousand dollars in the Which back
0: then was probably over 100. over a hundred today yeah, sure,
1: and I said no, i'm gonna go off uh to Europe and um I had had friends I had a lot of contacts working in in international news for the different uh, wire services. And they said, well, you should go to London and uh, hook up with Reuters, uh, which was a news agency. Mm -hmm. And they had a place, uh, a TV news service called VizNews. And I knew VizNews because VizNews was Reuters TV arm and they would supply all the the TV stations that I worked for with their footage. So it's kind of an insider thing. So I went over there and applied for a job and got a job Um, uh, at VizNews as a producer and uh, writer and reporter. So I worked there uh, for like a year, year and a half uh, in England, learning a lot about uh, international news. This is at the height of apartheid. So there was a lot of violence going on in in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the time of the space shuttle disaster. There was a lot of... A demand for instant satellite news, which Viz News was. VizNews was a satellite yeah. news agency. Yep. So we were really at the cutting edge. Uh, but when you're mixing and mingling with other Canadians in the community in London, um, you make connections. And uh, I, I learned that the woman who was the CBC radio reporter in London was about to go to Moscow uh, with her husband. And so a job was coming open at uh, CBC in London and I applied for it and lo and behold I got the job uh, as the local uh, local hire radio reporter at the CBC bureau in London which at the time was like an embassy I think there must have been 30 employees there there was a charge d'affaires there was a uh, it was uh, CBC was bloated and big at the time yeah it was a three story building and there was the sort of the diplomatic person on the ground floor. There was the manager. There was the French. There was the English. It was a huge operation. And, uh, and even
0: though it was CBC, it was still kind of a government
1: mentality. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And the um, we were right next to the BBC, BBC uh, uh, downtown uh, West End headquarters, because we would share libraries with them. And uh, there were... There was uh, uh, two French correspondents. There was a radio and TV uh, French correspondent, and there were two English correspondents, a TV correspondent and a, uh, <coughs> a foreign correspondent, um, who at the time was Patrick Brown. But when you're the London uh, Bureau radio reporter, you cover you know, Europe and North Africa in the Middle, mm-hmm. uh, middle East. So you get an assignment reporter in Toronto saying hey, there's something that's happening in Spain, can you hop over there and do it? And you have to say, well, it looks close on the map, but it's actually yeah. gonna take me a, a day or two to get there. So we're always explaining geography uh, to the people back in Toronto. So what I was gonna say was that the, the main correspondent, Patrick Brown, was off doing other things most of the time, which left uh, the UK and parts of Western Europe m- on my doorstep. Uh, to cover a lot of stories, and there was a lot going on.
0: Yes, especially, specifically, uh, in Northern Ireland.
1: Absolutely. This was between 1985 and 1988, the height of the Troubles, and it just so happened that, I think it was Remembrance Day 1987, uh, we woke up, uh, Remembrance Day, and uh, in a skillin Uh, uh, the IRA uh, planted a bomb outside the church and uh, 12 people were killed and about 60 people were injured. And there were other news happening, so I believe the TV reporter was off doing something else and the radio reporter was somewhere else. And so I got the call, uh, get on a plane, get up to Inniskillen and and get this on the news. And that was my first uh, TV and radio joint Mm-hmm. Report. I think I was there for two or three days, maybe longer.
0: Always in Iniskilling, or always in Iniskilling
1: because yeah. it's so close. It's only an hour from London, yeah. by plane. And back then, you didn't have to go through security and all that kind yeah. of stuff. You just hopped yeah. on the plane and went. But we were up there when Margaret Thatcher came up, and they did a um, uh, memorial. Mm-hmm. I was up there a couple of times, so that was a that was my first sort of real experience at conflict, <clears throat> and then. I think it was March 1988 I was sent up again because what had happened was um, um, there were three IRA, uh, I guess you call them terrorists or extremists or operatives, they had been killed in Gibraltar by the British troops.
0: You're listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. Check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. And now, back to the show.
1: Uh, so that was uh, a, a major event, and they were about to be buried in uh, the IRA cemetery, Billtown Cemetery. It was March 1988. And again, there was no security, it was pretty open. And um, a Protestant extremist or, or a terrorist by the name, I remember his name even, Michael Stone was his name. Hmm. And he came in...
0: uh, Where was the cemetery? Belfast. It was in Belfast? Right in Belfast, yeah. Okay.
1: Milltown Cemetery. It's still there. And he came in uh, armed with a submachine gun, uh, some grenades, and he just let loose on the circle of people right around the... There were three graves, I think, Mm -hmm. and he just let loose, and he killed seven people. Wow. Or three people. I can't remember how many people died. I think uh, seven people died. And many others were injured. Was and he killed? No, nope, he wasn't killed. He got away. The mob? No, he didn't get away either. The mob uh, tackled him, uh, and then the police intervened and pulled him away. But
0: so you were there, standing in line at the ceremony. Not suddenly... in line. We were.
1: We were all encircled uh, around the graves. So yeah. at the very three the three uh, uh, holes in the ground, the three burial spots, right. then the IRA leadership, Jerry Adams and all the people right. from the IRA and Sinn Fein. <clears throat> and then the media right. and, and family, of course. Yeah, so we were <clears throat> like from here to the end of the table, maybe three meters away, four meters away from the actual uh, thing, the, the actual yeah. ceremony. Yeah. And uh, Michael Stone came in from the opposite side of the West. So we saw him coming in uh, and started firing. And I immediately jumped into another freshly dug grave beside me, along with a German raider reporter. Not one of the
0: soldiers' graves.
1: No, it was empty. Yeah, okay. It was an empty empty, uh, grave site. I jumped in there, and it was, like, up to my shoulders. So... I kept my microphone rolling mm-hmm. uh, as the gunfire and screaming erupted, and uh, the coast was clear eventually. And we climbed out, and uh, I rushed to the nearest payphone and uh, made a collect call to Canada and filed my first report.
0: Do you still have that? Mm-hmm. You still have all of the recordings of that?
1: I even have the raw tape of the of the wow. of the gunfire. Yeah.
0: Were you ever? Called before, I assumed the Stone character was put on trial.
1: No, there was hundreds of media from all over the world. Oh, so uh, they didn't depend on no, yeah. <clears throat> and I was the radio reporter. The CBC had a TV crew there, yeah. but I was the radio reporter. So there was a there was a lot of the troubles were causing a lot of uh, of uh, giving a lot of news, getting a lot of news coverage at the time. Between what was
0: going through your mind when the guns? The gunfire started?
1: Nothing. I was there to do my job, and I just, my first thought was to keep recording and watch as much as possible and see what was going on, because in the confusion of a massacre, you don't really know anything except what you're seeing, yeah, and uh, piece the story together bit by bit.
0: Now, were you recognized at all for this coverage? No. You weren't given any sort of award, or...? No,
1: I wasn't expecting an award, and never even thought I. I don't even think today I was doing my job.
0: Did Did anyone at the Home Office say nice going or?
1: No, I mean miss? I think uh, um, I don't know. I mean I have to uh, think about that. But the funny funny thing is, the woman who read the news, uh, World Report news, in the morning back in the day, Barbara Smith, eventually moved back to moved to Stratford, so she retired and lives oh, in wow. Stratford, and she was the. Uh, the newsreader who interviewed me from the cemetery that day. Oh, so
0: again, circles. And <clears throat> yeah.
1: But the most alarming thing happened after that massacre because um, uh, the people who were killed in that massacre also had to be buried, mm-hmm. and the British undercover Secret Service were there watching the parade uh, commemorating these people who had died at the cemetery, and the crowd spotted them because you know they're undercover, but yeah. it's yeah. they're sitting ducks. Yeah. And um, they, in front of me and the world's media, they dragged these two young men out of their car and beat them to a pulp in front to death in front of the cameras and for me that was more traumatic seeing and that and they were
0: british soldiers
1: british undercover soldiers monitoring wow. monitoring the parade uh, for the people who had died at the milltown cemetery the previous week or two previous
0: and you saw all that as well mm-hmm. wow
1: we filmed it it was it Terrorist. was it was awful yeah and um, i was up there for weeks on end and back and forth a lot and I remember uh, being back in Toronto, uh, not so long after. I was sitting at a patio um, at, across from the CBC on Jarvis Street, and a car backfired. I was having a lunch with a friend, and I, and I just jumped you out hit of the my ground. <clears throat> well, it scared me, and I yeah. said, "Oh, I've got." Yeah. And we didn't know what it was called back then, but it was P- PTSD. Yes. You know? And uh,
0: absolutely, I can imagine that. Yeah. Well, now. Your career now is, and for quite some time, has been documentaries. And how did that happen?
1: Well, uh, going from
0: hard news to well, it was kind of
1: happened by accident. But after I had worked in London, I came back to to Canada. Uh, this was the time when Knowlton Nash was still reading the news. Yeah. And I got offered a job. I guess you were asking about awards. I mean, I think my work got recognized, and they said, well, we have to have Craig back in, in, yeah. in at the home office or in Canada. So I got offered a job. I was married at the time, and we both got offered jobs at the CBC. I was uh, Nolten Nash's uh, writer Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. One of them. I mean, they had a few writers yeah, yeah. writing copy. Uh, back on the manual typewriters and the carbon paper.
0: And you'd get the stories off the wire and then do your own rewrite?
1: Yeah, you do your own rewrite and you do intros. You would be responsible for editing something with an editor and packaging it and writing the on-camera intro that Nolan would read. I would do that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, Sunday, I would have my own camera crew and I'd be assigned a a feature report or something for Saturday, Sunday. And I did that. And then Knowlton retri- retired and Peter Mansbridge took over. And I did the same thing for a while, uh, doing writing for Peter Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then doing the reporting on Saturday and Sunday and occasionally during the week as well. But because I had started my TV career in the private sector in, in at CFTO and CTV, I'd had a lot of friends over there. And I, I don't think I was complaining, but I was saying... You know, I like working at CBC, but I'd like to get more serious news. Because on weekends, when you're working for the CBC, there's a lot of features. Puff pieces. Uh, puff pieces. You're going to go and do the uh, cat show or yeah. whatever. <laughs> you know, or the, whatever the, the story of the day was, the, the weekend soft pieces. And I yeah. wanted to really, you know, I, was, I wanted to be a war correspondent. I sure. wanted to do really yeah. deep stuff. And, and so CTV uh, was looking for somebody in their Toronto bureau. Uh, to It was the floater job, so the, uh, they wanted an on-camera person in Toronto five days a week, Monday to Friday, and I was living in Toronto. We had you know, a kid on the way, and mm-hmm. uh, I wanted a job in, in Toronto because CBC had said, well, if you really want to get more airtime, this is what happened. They said, well, you can go to Charlottetown, or you can go to Winnipeg, or you can go somewhere else. We just can't give you airtime here. You have to go out in the in the in the, the, region. in, in the regions to yeah. pay your dues and get more on camera. But I was kind of stuck because uh, uh, my wife at the time was reading the midday news on CBC, so she had a pretty uh, decent job as a, an on-camera newsreader. Uh, this is before News World, around the time News World came on. Um, and uh, so I took the job at CTV as the floater, and what you do as the floater is you would sometimes report from Toronto but if there was a, a gap in a bureau like Winnipeg, you'd go out there, you'd go to Edmonton, I mm-hmm. uh, went to Washington. So I would basically float around and do uh, reports from. So in the baseball
0: world, they call that a utility man. I was a utility. It was needed.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So did a lot of traveling uh, and doing that. And the furthest I went, the best gig was going to Washington, D.C. and mm-hmm. filling in at the Washington Bureau. That was really interesting. Did that, did my stand ups in front of the White House. No kidding. That was kind what of fun. What were
0: some of the big stories coming out of that?
1: It was the Iran Contra scandal. Wow. Ollie North yeah. and guns. Uh, for, uh, yeah.
0: Guns for, you know, Reagan denied it, but it was.
1: Well, it was, it was actually, I don't, I'm losing track of my eras here because uh, George Bush Sr. was president. Yeah uh at the time Reagan oh, okay. was gone and I can't remember what scandal it was there was an Iran scandal at the time cuz I still remember that vividly Yeah yeah but I can't remember exactly uh what the details were but um, this was also the time when the uh the birth of the independent film and television industry was coming on on stream CBC was no longer going to be doing all their productions in house they wanted to get rid of everybody and hire them back at yep. a lower yep. cost as on freelancers contract. on contract. So this huge wave was happening of layoffs, but also technology was becoming cheaper and more accessible. So the independent film and television industry in Canada really started around
0: 1993.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1995 <clears throat> is when I set up my company, Ballin Ryan Entertainment, uh, to produce content, which I sold back to the CBC.
0: And your first show was?
1: It was a show called Cottage Country.
0: I remember that well.
1: We ended up doing that show for nine seasons, 121 episodes. Amazing. Took a lot of, out of me, uh, uh, including my marriage, because I was hosting the show with my ex wife or my wife at the time, and a, mm-hmm. and uh, I never not a good idea. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. But. Uh, and I, I think I had good reasons to do it because I said, well, I want to spend more time in the outdoors exploring Canada and more yeah. time at the cottage yeah. And so it was back in the day, again, there was no specialty TV at the time, and this was just the CBC. Yeah. So we were getting you know hundred, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand viewers a weekend for our show. It was huge. We would get mailbags every week of people writing in for recipes and yeah. and things like that. Course, so it was the
0: cottage, a cottage the cottage zeitgeist in Canada? It just huge. started, yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, so it was a magazine show, so by a magazine show, just like a print magazine, you'd have different yeah. things. So we had a feature, we had a cooking segment, we had a handyman segment. How to fix a, the boathouse. We had a humor segment, yeah. So it was yeah. a formula show, but uh, we kept it going for nine years. That was nine Amazing. years of my and life. You
0: were with it how many years?
1: All years. Yeah, but uh, oh. you were the fr- uh, I hosted the for house? the first, first two years, yeah. and I hosted it for the last year as well. Um, but I, I realized there was more fun and control behind the camera yeah, than on yeah. camera.
0: And that gave us the impetus to, to start your current journey in the documentary world.
1: Well, yeah, because once you have—when you're doing uh, uh, that many episodes a year, you get a lot of experience on how to raise money and how to do budgets and how to mm. produce something. And then I got another show from CBC that they commissioned because of my first show, because it was so popular— and then the, the fellow who was the boss of uh, CBC at the time in Ottawa uh, moved, uh, lured away by Michael McMillan to Alliance Atlantis and at the beginning of the specialty craze, and he started a channel called History, wow. history, history Television. And so I started pitching shows to History and mm-hmm. uh, did shows, did documentaries for them. Um, in the old style of documentaries when you do uh, narration. Yes, uh, voiceover. Uh, voiceover. And did a series uh, for Food Network when they got started and Home and Garden TV, which I actually shot in Stratford called The Manic Organic.
0: I remember that too.
1: And then, uh, yeah, started doing a lot, uh, a lot more documentaries. And so it sort of was paired with the growth of specialty TV. There was a yeah. lot, there was an insatiable appetite for Absolutely. film and TV, and I knew how to make it.
0: Yeah, and, yeah.
1: And you know, I never planned it. It just it just happened. Now, so.
0: bringing us up to the current date, what are some of your pleasant and <clears throat> most successful documentaries you've made over the, the past 20 years? Well,
1: because of the Stratford connection, I got to meet William Shatner because mm-hmm. Bill started his career in Stratford on the right. stage of the Stratford Festival. And uh, back in the mid-2000s, I had this brilliant idea to start a documentary festival in Stratford called DocFest Stratford. And Bill was just getting into the documentary world. He just made a documentary, and uh, I thought it would be a good way of kicking off the festival and have a screening. Yeah. And uh, through a friend who had worked with him, I called him up, and he's not a guy. He's old school. He doesn't have an agent. He answers his own phone. Yeah. He has an assistant, but he, he takes his own calls. Yeah. And I found out that um, from him that in the two or three decades that he'd been away from Stratford, nobody had ever invited him back on an official basis. He'd wow. never been invited back. Wow. I was the first person to reach out and say, hey, Bill, I want to invite you to yeah. Stratford. So he jumped to the chance, and he came up to Stratford on his own dime, and I put him up in uh, nice accommodations, and we screened his film at DocFest. I think this was in 2008 or 2009. What's that film? Uh, William Shatner's Gonzo Ballet.
0: That's right.
1: (laughs) And he was, uh, you know, Bill's a uh, 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 multi-talented artist and performer, he did a spoken word album um, a spoken word album, and he decided he wanted to create a ballet to go along with it. So he worked with the Minneapolis <laughs> Ballet Company, and they made a documentary where they paired his spoken word ramblings and his poetry to dance, and he made a documentary. So well, uh, he came I up here. I seeing that. Yeah. It's a great little film. Yeah. And uh, because he'd been away from Canada for so long, he didn't really realize that There was all sorts of money available to him as a Canadian, as a director, and as a star. And said, hey, Bill, if you ever (laughs) want to do any movies, documentaries, come on up. up." So he came up, and we went around to broadcasters, and we came up with uh, a film. This was in 2011, I think, called The Captains. Mm -hmm. Because we were trying to come up with an idea, and we said, well, I asked him what he wants to do. He said, I really want to... I've never met the other captains of the other Star Treks. Right. Let's just go talk to them. And so we came up uh, with a film called The Captains, where he would uh, reflect on his life and career, but he'd also explore the impact that being a captain on Star Trek had on the four or five other actors who played the role. And this was... Back in the '70s, after Star Trek got canceled, uh, Bill went back to Summerstock Theater. He didn't get rich off Star Trek, and when the Star Trek fandom started coming up, he kind of poo-pooed it. He says that that show ruined my life. I'm I'm broke now, and I'm typecast as uh, a, a Starship Captain. And yeah. he did. He kind of made fun of, of that show and didn't want to be involved.
0: Didn't want to capitalize. He, he on wasn't it. proud of it. Yeah. Right, he wasn't proud of it. I remember once I, I seeing saw him. I think it was a SNL script or a skit, but a, an av, um, avid Star Trek fan would just pour out his whole soul to Shatner, and Shatner would look at him and said, "Kid, get a life."
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that became the name of Bill's book, "Get a Life." Yeah. Um, he gradually, when the movies started coming out, the the movies that were inspired by original series, he started to realize, well, this is a good way of making a buck and the fandom start. But it wasn't really until um, um, Star Trek The Next Generation with Patrick Stewart Mm -hmm. that the franchise really became sustainable. And when Patrick, uh, we interviewed Patrick Stewart in England, um, when Patrick, because Patrick has a Shakespearean background just like Bill. And when Patrick told Bill that he entered the the Star Trek The Next Generation with skepticism oh this will last for a season I'll go to something yeah. else Patrick really realized the power of television to convey stories mm-hmm. in a meaningful and purposeful way yeah. and that revelation from from Patrick elicited a response from Bill that gave Bill a moment of pause and reflection to realize that, what he did back in the 60s with star trek really did have value and he shouldn't Absolutely. diminish his his talent because of it so
0: and with the recent passing of, of the black woman who played uh nichols on yeah. star trek they had made a big point in her uh, in her obit to say that she and shatner kissed On an episode of Star Trek. The first interracial kiss. Yeah, which was, you know, I mean, back then it was big news.
1: Well, they had to the southern stations uh, asked uh, Gene Roddenberry to shoot an alternate version. Uh, And they said, "Okay, we'll shoot an alternate version. But uh, they conspired, Bill and, and Nichelle conspired to do something that they couldn't use. They flubbed their lines or something. And so it went in to all the stations. Yeah, good for them. But it's interesting around the captains because anybody who knows Bill, he's a he's a very um, he's a workaholic. Yeah, he's very direct and he's very interesting uh, character. He's, he's, he's uh, uh, You made
0: another very successful documentary with him.
1: Well, I wanted to st- tell yeah. this story about the captains. So we were out shopping our, this captain's idea around to the different broadcasters, and we were out at the Banff TV festival. And Bill had just had a hip operation or uh, some sort of operation where he got a metal rod or something put in his hip. And uh, he was flying home from Calgary International Airport back to Los Angeles. And he went through the metal detector and it went off. And, uh, you know, the gentleman who was the security guard was from South Asia, from India, no knowledge of who this guy was. and. Bill is from that era where you know you treat movie stars and TV yeah. stars with a lot of respect and he felt disrespected and he got sent to secondary inspection you know don't you know who I am yeah. kind of thing. And uh, so a few weeks later I'm down at Bill's um, horse uh, ranch in in Los Angeles planning out the shoot for the mm-hmm. captains because we were successful at Banff and got a broadcaster and we were ready to start going. And we're sitting around at a picnic table outside of his stables, and he said, Craig, got some bad news for you. I'm not flying commercial. So (laughs) we had everything budgeted and lined up. I had all the money uh, organized for flights and stuff like that. And uh, anybody who knows private aviation, you can eat up a lot of money with one flight. Oh, yeah. And so it was going to derail the whole project. So I started, you know, pulling things uh, out of the thin air to try to solve the, the problem because it would have cost almost the cost of the entire budget oh, to yeah. fly them around. And so uh, the first thing we did, well, Bill, don't you uh, have shares in Priceline? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, let's call the marketing director of Priceline. So we call the marketing director at that moment of Priceline and say, hey, listen, we have a problem. Bill doesn't want to fly commercial. Can we borrow one of your planes? Uh, to fly around, because the captains were in New York, Patrick Stewart was in England, we had to do all of this stuff in four or five days. yeah. We didn't have to fly there, because Bill was there, but we had to fly all over the place. And the fellow from Priceline, the president of Priceline uh, said, let me get back to you. And so he called us back uh, a little while later saying, you know, as much as we love Bill and appreciate Bill's involvement in our company, it's going to exceed our marketing budget, no thanks. So I had done a series called Cottage Country back in Canada mm-hmm. uh, for several years. And one of the sponsors was Bombardier sea 2 And the fellow who was president of the recreational products division, I believe his name is Laurent Baudouin uh, at the time, went on to head up the uh, aviation division. So I called him, his s- assistant out of the blue. I said, you may not remember me, but like, 15 years ago, you sponsored a little TV show that I did <laughs> called the Cottage Country. And now I'm doing this thing with William Shatner. We have a problem on our hands. So Laurent uh, Beaudoin passed the baton to one of his uh, executives uh, who is running the private uh, jet division. And uh, this gentleman uh, calls us up and I explain, we have to get Bill. Bill's given us five days or six days of his schedule. We have to get this film done in six days. He needs to be picked up in Burbank, pick our crew up in Toronto, fly to Cambridge, England to meet Patrick Stewart, then fly to New York City to meet Kate Mulgrew, then to go to New Jersey to, to meet Avery Brooks, uh, and then fly Bill and his wife back to their ranch in Kentucky. And uh, he said, okay, what day do you need the jet? And we'll have it ready for you. So Bombardier gave us a, a corporate jet. They paid for the fuel, everything.
0: What kind of... Plane was it Challenge,
1: plane? like a it was like a Challenger jet, like a 10-, 12 seater executive jet.
0: What did they get out of the deal?
1: Well, I'll tell you. Uh, so anyway, they picked Bill up in Burbank. They picked us up in England, uh, in, in Toronto. We flew to England uh, that very day. We drove to Patrick Stewart's house and did the interview. It was really rushed. We did that. We then we stayed overnight one night, uh, and then flew back to New York. It was uh, the July Fourth weekend. Uh, in New York. <laughs> and it was the holiday weekend uh, in New York, 102 degrees. And we had to film with Bill uh, and Kate Mulgrew. And then we drove over to New Jersey, interviewed Avery Brooks, and then Bill went off to, um, to Kentucky. So what did Bombardier get out of it? Well, Bombardier uh, uh, needed a celebrity ambassador for its brand. So um, Bill we put Bombardier in the film. We had a film scene with the president of Bombardier greeting Bill at the uh, Toronto International Airport and we made the airplane part of the documentary because it was the the airplane saved the film. Otherwise yeah, we wouldn't have a documentary. Absolutely. And then after that Bill uh, got hired by Bombardier to do some motivational speeches and do some customer appreciation events. In addition event. to Priceline. In addition to Priceline. My god. Well Priceline is a is a consumer uh, was a consumer website for yeah. for the early travel bookings, whereas Bombardier Aviation was selling private jets to oh, individuals. Yeah, uh, Priceline just had their own jet for their own yeah. marketing purposes. But I know,
0: and when we went to Northern Ireland, the uh, I forget the name of the company that built the Titanic, but they're still there. But it's Bombardier that, yeah. that is working there.
1: Yeah. So Bombardier. Uh, Saved the, saved the film and uh, the film did very well we sold it to Netflix all over the world and it did very well and that led to a follow up film with Patrick Stewart uh, on Star Trek The Next Generation yeah. called Chaos on the Bridge yeah. and then that led to uh, another film where I, which I wanted to do around the anniversary of Star Trek never happened on the anniversary because it took too long to, for the broadcasters to make up their mind but we called the film The Truth is in the Stars, and the premise of that documentary was to transport the viewer into the era of Star Trek, Mm -hmm. 250 years from now, Mm -hmm. when it was set, Mm -hmm. and imagine how we might be looking back on the time we're living right now. So in order to tell that story, uh, we decided that we would get Bill in front of the leading minds and thinkers in the world uh, of the day. Um, We ended up with fewer than we'd agreed to. We had a lot of people who had said yes, and we couldn't fit them into the film. But uh, we ended up uh, interviewing Whoopi Goldberg, uh, who was in Star Trek The Next Generation, Mm -hmm. who was inspired by Nichelle Nichols uh, Mm -hmm. in in that role. We interviewed uh, Seth MacFarlane, who created Family Guy. but Seth MacFarlane is also the producer of Cosmos, the series on PBS, or it's on National Geographic now. And
0: he was a huge Star Trek fan. Huge
1: Star Trek science fiction fan. Yeah. Uh, we interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson from the Hayden Observatory right. in New York. Uh, Jason Alexander uh, from Seinfeld, who mm. also started on Star Trek, worked on Star Trek uh, in a number of episodes. Uh, who else? Uh, Chris Hatfield, the astronaut, yeah. Yeah. who Bill had spoken to when Chris was up at the space station uh uh David Suzuki uh, talking yeah. about the environmental aspect. Yeah. But the icing on the cake was the chance to meet Stephen Hawking. And that was the almost never happened. It 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 was not on. I it was on talking,
0: but it's one of his <coughs> last interviews, I believe.
1: One of his last interviews. He died like six months later. Yeah. But it was a really What was that like it was a delicate negotiation because first of all uh stephen hawking doesn't do interviews you have to submit the questions in advance
0: because he has to prepare the answer absolutely yeah uh,
1: so i worked uh my tail off to convince them to do this and then, then they said no at first and i said okay i'm in canada can i come to england next weekend to sit down and explain this film to you and they said if you're willing to come to England, you can come and, and, and meet Stephen and meet us. So I flew to England uh, on this is a... This before the filming. Yeah, this is like in 2016, I think, yeah. or fifth. Earlier, yeah, it, it was in... It was a few... Um, it was in July, I believe, July of 2016. So I flew over to Heathrow, uh, rented a car, went up to Cambridge, um, met his team at Cambridge University and his office, and I said... It was a typical university professor's office. It wasn't big enough, and it wasn't that exciting. And I said, really, this is Bill meeting Stephen for the first time. Can we please go to his house? And so they talked to Stephen, and Stephen said yes send him over. So I went over for lunch to Stephen Hawking's house, which was just across campus.
0: Why do you think he finally said yes to this? Because I had a
1: chance to sit down with him face-to-face and it was like a monologue because he can't answer. He can answer, yeah. uh, he can answer you know, pleasantries and yeah. saying thank the, you so the much.
0: Voice recorder, the voice <clears throat> recorder. Best
1: of luck with the project was what he said yeah. to me. Um, so I sat there. His assistants were there too. So I was talking to two or three of them as we were having lunch at a table no bigger than this in his, in his house. And I told him why I wanted to make the film and why Bill wanted to meet him. The good thing was Stephen Hawking was a huge Star Trek fan. Yes. And Stephen Hawking had actually been on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, playing really? a poker game with uh, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, and also Hawking had been in the Vomit Comet, you know, the plane where astronauts yes. train. Yes. And he'd never met William Shatner and admired him and agreed to, to be interviewed. So what happened was we had to develop the list of questions— Mm-hmm. Uh, which I sent over like a month in advance, six weeks in advance. We only could ask eight questions because of the time involved for him yeah. to do the answers. So we really had a tough time uh, coming up with the questions. We ended up sending over more questions, and we get there. Uh, we fly over with Bill a few weeks later, and uh, we take Bill around Cambridge University mm-hmm. and do a beautiful thing. And Then we go to the house. And we were told we'd get an hour with Stephen Hawking. Well, it ended up being four hours, wow! Because unbeknownst to us, Stephen Hawking had prepared questions for Bill. So <laughs> after Bill had asked all his questions, yeah, uh, uh, Stephen started asking questions uh, of of Bill, and it got into this. It yeah. went on and on and on. Yeah. And at the end, as we were wrapping up, Stephen had a, had a real sense of humor. And uh, as they were saying goodbye uh, on camera, uh, uh, Stephen said, "Bill, would you like to stay for dinner?" <laughs> so, so Bill, uh, I'd love to. So Bill actually stayed for dinner. He invited. I was invited to go along as well, but I chose not to. I thought it was better for Bill just to go there. Yeah. But Bill was really nervous because. Um, there
0: was this interaction that was prepared yeah. for the interview. Yeah.
1: And he said to Craig, what am I gonna,
0: what am I gonna do? Because at this point, Stephen Hawking couldn't speak, I believe.
1: Couldn't speak. It was all computerized. Yeah. And I said to Bill, Bill was doing this one-man show at the time, I said, Bill, just pretend it's your one-man show to an audience of one. Yeah. And just talk. Yeah. <laughs> and,
0: and that's what happened. That's
1: what happened. And so the next morning I said to Bill, how'd it go? He said, I've, I talked for three hours straight uh, uh, <laughs> talking to this guy, and we had lamb stew, and it was oh, just wonderful. God. And uh, I think for Bill, uh, it was one of the most moving experiences of, yeah. his, of his life. Yeah, I remember
0: seeing that segment. not yeah. not the dinner, but the, and he was so he was so taken with his with with Stephen Hawking's presence. Yeah, but we
1: all were. Like of yeah. all the people I've ever met in my career having a chance to spend not one day but two days with Stephen Hawking one-on-one was, like, incredible, and it was just uh, was uh, wonderful. So that also sold on Netflix around the world, and it kind of put us into a different league. So since that time, we've been able to work with a lot of Hollywood brands and entertainment franchises and and celebrities, and because of those films I did uh, with Bill... It opened the door to, for example, working with Alex Trebek. Yes. Because Alex uh, knew knew Bill and knew the captains and... And so I wanted to do the same kind of thing with Alex that we did with Bill and the Captains, yeah. uh, where we're not doing a superficial look. We're going behind pop culture to see what the relationship is between pop culture and uh, inf- whether it impacts society, how it influences society, the, the relationship, giving you know what we might think is fluff uh, some credibility. Yeah. And game shows were always ridiculed as being, ah, oh, it's time-wasting yeah. stuff. But with game changers, we we did the same thing we did with Bill with captains, where we went into the underlying motivation of the and men. Spoke
0: with a lot of
1: the men and women, who, iconic
0: personalities in game shows. Yeah, to find out, Hall and yeah,
1: Vanna White, Pat Sajak, yeah, uh, Howie Mandel, all those people, not to celebrate the celebrity part of it, but just to get the true meaning of. What it meant to them. Absolutely. And uh, it was a very powerful, uh, powerful film. Yeah. And uh, recently I was talking to Alex's uh, wife, um, Jean. And she said Alex was really proud of that film yeah. and really uh, really enjoyed working on it. So well, it was
0: a great retrospect because I think you began with the very earliest of game shows.
1: That's right, in and the 1940s, and we got there at the right time because since we uh, yeah. since we filmed, many Alex, of them have passed away. Monty so Hall, Monty Hall, Alex passed uh, away.
0: Kennedy, I believe.
1: Uh, Tom Kennedy. Tom
0: Kennedy. Yeah. 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 A lot yeah. of them had. That's,
1: Had passed away. So we're very lucky uh, to be able to get that. Absolutely. And uh, then um, we kind of stopped doing that because the pandemic uh, hit. Yeah. But just prior to the pandemic, we were working in China uh, and we're working on a film with Cirque du Soleil in China, which we luckily got finished. Yes. Just in time because... In January 2020, the show got shut down, and we had just finished filming in the fall. And, is it
0: uh, is it up and running again?
1: It's up and running in a very different guise because when the pandemic hit, uh, half the acrobats who were from foreign countries left China yeah, yeah. to go back to their home countries, and they couldn't get back in because China stopped issuing yeah, uh, yeah, visas. Yeah, And so the show... Uh, changed title, it changed format. And but it's, it's still running. It's not a Cirque du Soleil show anymore. It's not? No, it's Cirque du Soleil is not involved. Wow. Because they don't have anybody representing them in China yeah. and uh, it's they can't manage the creative, uh, yeah. so it's not their show anymore. They walked away. No. And of course, Cirque du Soleil, like a lot of performing arts companies, were devastated by the shutdown Absolutely. and Cirque du Soleil is now focusing on its Las Vegas resident shows and its tent shows, trying to get their you, revenue back you up again. Now you
0: apparently just saw Cirque du Soleil.
1: I saw in Montreal a show COSA, uh recently. Just a, its an older show. It's 15 years old, but they're using their their the legacy shows like Alegria and Kuzza yeah. to build up their revenue. Where are they
0: performing as it, it intense? Intense in wow. the big top.
1: But they're traveling across Canada this year doing doing that show. Yeah. So China has figured prominently in my career recently, and yes, we, in your uh, personal
0: life as well.
1: Yeah, we. Uh, my wife's Chinese. Um, we did uh, a film also in China, following doctors in the footsteps of Norman Bethune, which we just finished, and yes. then. Um, uh, we did a film in Wuhan just after the pandemic started, and we were the first Western crew, uh, Western team, yes. to be able to. You
0: filmed in Wuhan, I believe.
1: Under, um, we did it remotely. We smuggled a camera yeah. into Wuhan and got a Canadian who lived there, to take us out on the street. It
0: seems the the you know kind of golden thread through your career was the ability to get things done against all odds uh you know the the jet plane getting a jet plane to fly uh shatner around uh landing jobs that got you in northern ireland and uh i mean being a documentary producer is as i'm sure it's like being pecked to death by a thousand ducks as the expression goes but you managed to uh Persevere and, and survive.
1: Well, I think it's because of the news uh, background. When you're sent out to do a news story, you have to come back with a news story. And you can't take no for an answer. You yeah. have to overcome all of the problems that you encounter in the field. And yeah. if you don't come back, then you don't have a job. Yeah. Uh, don't come back with a story, you don't have a job. Yeah. Um, so you have to always think on your feet. The other thing news taught me was to write and edit in my head. Because when you're doing your stand-up, you're, you're maybe writing from rough notes on paper, but you yeah. have to script yeah. yourself live, Yeah. and you have to shoot as if you're editing, because yeah. you have an hour or two to edit your piece uh, when you get back to the shop. So that's always, to, feel- to me,
0: that's been a, a, a talent from news people that I, I really envy, is to stand in front of a camera and extemporaneously speak about a situation without a script, but it all seems... So together and so so edited, you know. But you're doing it as you say in your head.
1: Yeah, it's just it, it, it's training, and I've used that in in China because I've been to China a lot over the last ten years. And there's a um, uh, we got an award last weekend in Montreal for yes. our film Footsteps in Bethune, uh, best director award, and which is sitting there on the on the desk that gold yeah. trophy. And the reason we got uh, that award was because. We didn't take no for an answer, even from the <laughs> Chinese when we went there, because we were sanctioned or given permission by the Chinese consulate in Montreal to do this film following Montreal doctors. But there are different levels of government in China, and some are more sensitive than the others. So the places we were going, following in the footsteps of Norman Bethune, are sensitive politically, militarily, and yeah. and culturally. and they don't really encourage foreigners to go to these places, let alone foreigners with a film crew. Yeah.
0: yeah. So
1: we uh, were not allowed to go to these places, but we showed up anyway. So in the one place, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is the funny story. In, this is why I think I got the Best Direction. We got the Best Direction awards because we didn't take no. But Norman Bethune, in 1953, his body was transferred to a bigger city called Shujijong which is a major military uh, city just outside of Beijing. and a big military cemetery. And uh, we were told prior to arriving that we couldn't go there. But there's nobody preventing you from comping on a plane and booking a hotel and going there. So we yeah. showed up at the hotel and, uh, camera in hand, well, where cameras were packed away. Yeah. And, uh, the police called our local, our, our producer, our Chinese producer who was with us. And, and, the uh, the hotel answered to the police and said, no, no, these are nice people. They're here from Canada. They're doing a nice story. <laughs> and so what happened was instead of, uh, kicking us out of the city, they went the extra length um, because we said we were sanctioned by the consulate yeah. they didn't want to they take our word for it and get in trouble for yeah. preventing us cuz yeah. this is the main this is where Norman Bethune is buried we can't finish the film without this scene and the other complication was it was the day before October 1st which was the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party of China so it was a very sensitive time in a sensitive city So what they did was they sent these two young PR people down from the local government and they closed the museum and the graveyard, allowed us in for a couple of hours to get all the footage we want, and then helped us carry our bags back to the train and ensured that we got back on the train to to Beijing. But uh, without that scene, we wouldn't have had the closing scenes of the, the film, and you just can't, yeah, without risking your life, of course, I would never do that. Right. But you have to find a way always to get what you need to make your film. And most people don't understand that because most people, p- some people might think it's pushy, yeah. but it's not. You're, you're actually getting what you need to do yeah. your job. And if you yeah. didn't, you're not going to have, have what you need to make the film. Craig no.
0: Thompson, no is not an option. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't think of it that way, though. I just, I, I know what I want to see on yeah. the screen, and you just have to sure. do it. And here we are now. Our, our company has celebrated its 27th anniversary Amazing. a few weeks Amazing. ago, and uh, we're still trying to find our way. It's still not easy. No. But. No.
0: Uh, if it was easy, everyone would be doing that's
1: it. That's right. But uh, anyway, it's been great chatting with myself.
0: Yes. It's very enlightening. Inla- I've learned things about you that I, I didn't know. Uh, so congratulations. Well,
1: thank you. I'm not. Uh, I'm not Michael Moore. I can't talk to myself for an hour, but I w- really am grateful for you t- to be my foil.
0: It's been my pleasure. Is that
1: the word foil? My, uh, my, uh, your, the Shakespearean your, term. Uh,
0: your biographer. <laughs>
1: Rick, thanks a lot. Uh, my pleasure. For allowing me to be my guest, uh, yes. on my own guest on my own podcast.
0: And it does quack like a duck.
1: <laughs> thanks a lot.
0: You've been listening to The Stratford Slice with Craig Thompson. For more episodes, check out our website, thestratfordslice.com, and be sure to subscribe. The Stratford Slice is produced by Ballinran Entertainment. Southwestern Ontario's number one digital media studio. If you have a great story to tell and want to be on the podcast, please reach out to us through our website, thestratfordslice.com.